The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 10 through 25. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome again to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad to see you this morning as we open God's word together. We are continuing our study in the book of Deuteronomy this morning. And if you are new with us or perhaps just need a refresher, Deuteronomy is about the second giving of the law. So at this point in the story of the Old Testament, Israel has been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They spent a year at Mount Sinai where they were given the law, the Ten Commandments, the first time. And at that point, they made a covenant with God that they would obey his laws, which of course they immediately broke. And so that generation was punished. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness until all of that disobedient generation died off. And now finally, the next generation is on the edge of the promised land, preparing to go in. And so far in Deuteronomy, Moses has been recounting all of that history. And now he's beginning to teach the law to this second generation, to reteach it to them before they go into the land. 
And in this morning's passage, we see why Israel needs all of these reminders, why they need to have the law brought before them yet again. Moses tells them, there is danger ahead. There is danger ahead. You can see our outline there in your bulletin. In the land that they're going into, Israel is going to be presented with all sorts of reasons to turn from God. And Moses reminds them why they must obey God and follow him. Their obedience is to be rooted in reverence of who God is and gratitude for what he has done. Reverence in who he is, gratitude for what he has done, that he has redeemed them. He brought them out of slavery to bring them into this promised land. And that is why they are called to obey him. So that will be our roadmap this morning, how we'll try to navigate the text together before we dive into it. Let me pause and pray, and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to bless our time in God's word together. Let's pray. Lord, Moses told your people that your word is no empty word. It is no vain word. It is our very life. We know that we do not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. And so we have gathered this morning as your people, the sheep of your pasture, and we long to be fed, Lord. Your law is perfect, Lord, reviving the soul. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things from it this morning. Pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. I was listening to a podcast this week and was reminded uh, of a great bit of common grace wisdom. Perhaps you've heard this adage before. Failing to plan is planning to fail. You've heard it. There are so many areas in life where that's true, aren't there? Not all of us are natural planners. In fact, some of us really enjoy not having a plan, just rolling with the punches. But even for those of us who enjoy that, there are some areas of life where that is untenable, right? Students, as final exams and papers are approaching, can tell you from personal experience, just winging it is not a great strategy, right? Don't roll with those punches. That will not go well for you. But there are lots of areas in life where this is true. On the podcast, they were actually talking about this in the context of discipling our children. They were making the point that if we wait until our children are in a given situation to teach them how followers of Jesus are supposed to navigate that type of situation, it will be too late. If, if we have not already spent time preparing them, when pressures and temptations arise, they'll have no shot. They weren't prepared. In the fog of war, disorder rules the battlefield. To fail to plan is to plan to fail. As Moses is teaching the second generation of Israelites the law, one of the things he wants them to see is the danger that lies ahead and he wants them to plan for it. There are pitfalls everywhere in the promised land. And if Israel is not prepared to face them, she will succumb to them. It's worth noting where Moses begins in verse 10. Did you notice this? 
when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers. Moses says, this will happen. He's reminding them, God keeps his promises. He said he would bring us into that land. And so he will do it. We know that. It will happen. Big scary enemies or not, our parents' failures or not, he will lead us in. But once Israel is in the land and they've received what God has promised them, Moses wants them to be aware of three pitfalls that we see there in your text. We see the first one in verses 10 through 12. Look back there with me. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So Moses, in those couple of verses there, mentions four things that Israel is going to inherit in the new land. And notice how emphatic he is that Israel will not be able to take credit for any of these things. Cities you didn't build, houses you didn't fill, cisterns you didn't dig, vineyards you did not plant. Why is Moses hammering that home to them? Well, the key there is in the end of verse 11 and then verse 12. When you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord. Moses tells the people the danger of a full life is that you can forget where it all comes from. You can begin to believe that you are responsible for all of it. And you can forget that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift that he is the one who sustains our every breath, that he is the one who provides our daily bread. He is the one who numbers our days. And Moses says, when you strike it rich, it becomes extraordinarily easy to forget that. Some of you may remember uh, the football coach, Barry Switzer, who popularized a saying, some people are born on third base and go through life thinking they hit a triple. That's it, isn't it? You know who he's talking about. And Moses is saying the same thing to Israel. When you get to the promised land, once the newness wears off, you're gonna be tempted to believe that all of this was your own doing and none of it was. God is the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He is the one who is bringing you into this promised land. So you be faithful to him. I think it's really tempting for us. We often think that a life of scarcity or difficulty would cause us to doubt God. And Moses is gonna get to that in a minute. But it's fascinating to me that he begins by warning Israel about the danger of a life of affluence. And what is the danger? It's a subtle one, isn't it? You just forget you forget. As you accumulate more, it is so easy to forget, to rewrite your history, to believe that you're a master of your own fate. 
There's no more American story than the self-made man or woman, right? And we're tempted to believe that. The danger is that we will forget that everything we have and everything we are, the Bible tells us, is a gift from God. And having forgotten that, we will be tempted to rely on our own strength. Think about this. How often in your own life, when a problem arises, what's your first step when something comes up? I can tell you what mine is. I begin Googling goods and services, right? Something I can buy in order to fix it. How often do we do that rather than first going to God in prayer? For many of us, prayer is the last resort once none of the purchases have worked. Maybe you've heard someone say, when God is all you've got, you find that God is all you need. What would be the inverse of that truth? When you've got a lot, you may find that you do not need him at all. You may be tempted to believe that you do not need him at all. Moses warns the people as they are going into the promised land, fullness can lead to forgetfulness. I don't know that I can think of a more appropriate thing for us as a church, in a church like this, in a community like this, in a country like this, to reflect on. We have been blessed with extraordinary blessings. Have we forgotten where they have all come from? Or do we look to God with gratitude and thankfulness for his provision? Moses says that's a pitfall. As you go in, you must be prepared or else you will forget. Moses gives another warning in verses 13 through 15. If you look back there with me, Moses warns Israel against worshiping the gods of the people around them. If you know the rest of the Old Testament, you know this is gonna be the central issue for Israel. The forgetfulness that affluence brings makes them vulnerable to the pressures of the culture around them. Having forgotten God, they allow idolatry to creep in. It is the danger in living in a land of plenty. The gods of the plentiful land start to look pretty good. And I don't think it's hard to see the application to our own situation, is it? We too live in a land of plenty. It is easy to fall prey to the idols that surround us. Perhaps for some of us, that's the idols of comfort and conformity. And so you feel the pressure to begin to bend on the Bible's ethical teachings because we wanna go along to get along. We wanna be comfortable and so we conform. For others of us, it may be the idolatry of winning and winning at any cost. So instead of following the way of Jesus and loving our enemies, blessing those who curse us, praying for those who persecute us, we begin to fight the way everyone else around us is fighting. We begin to mock and belittle and despise those who disagree with us because we wanna win. Moses tells the people, when you get into the land, do not go after the gods of the peoples around you. Do not give in to the pressures that surround you. Do not let the affluence lead to a forgetfulness that leads to idolatry. 
Finally, in verse 16, Moses mentions one more pitfall that they will need to avoid in the promised land. This difficulty and hardship that leads to a cynical doubt. Look back at verse 16 with me. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Moses there is referring to an incident back in Exodus 17 where Israel had no water. They'd been delivered from slavery in Egypt, but there was no water around them and they began to complain. And more than complain, they began to accuse God. Exodus 17 says they actually tested God by saying, is the Lord among us or not? They didn't pray for water. They didn't plead with God or remind him of his promises. They cynically threw his words back in his face. God had said he would be with them and in effect they say, well then be with us. How about some water? And Moses tells this next generation of Israelites, you must never do that. You must never let your circumstances, however dire, turn your prayers acidic. Notice the order of these warnings from Moses, that fullness that leads to forgetfulness, which leads to idolatry, which when things go bad, leads to cynical doubt. This is not to say that we are never permitted to doubt or to lament hard circumstances, but there is a difference between wrestling with God and testing God. There are many Psalms of lament where the psalmist wrestles with God and is very honest. Psalm 44 comes to mind. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? So the Bible doesn't shy away from giving us language for those moments in life when it feels like God has forgotten us. God actually gives us language in his word to pray back to him in those moments. But there is an important difference between that and letting our hearts turn towards cynicism. There is a massive gap between where are you God and some God you are. And Israel at Massa tested the Lord. Their circumstances drove them to a cynicism that led to doubt. So those are the three pitfalls that Moses is warning this generation about as they prepare to go into the promised land. Plan for these. Do not let affluence lead to forgetfulness. Do not let that forgetfulness lead to idolatry. And do not let that idolatry lead to cynical doubt. How are they to do that? How are, they how are they to avoid these pitfalls? And we see in verses 17 through 25, and, and also get a little preview of it in verse 13, Moses gives them a twofold remedy to these very real dangers. Moses encourages them towards obedience. So in verse 13, he says, fear the Lord and serve him. In verse 17, he says, diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God. In verse 18, he says, do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. And this obedience is to be rooted in two realities, reverence and redemption. 
who God is and what he has done. So look at that first one, obedience rooted in reverence. One of the reasons Moses gives that Israel ought to obey is who God is. He is the one they are to fear. He really brings us home in verse 15. Look back there with me. The Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Moses has warned Israel about worshiping the gods of the people of the land. And he shows them here what the consequences of doing that will be. God is driving those people out because of their disobedience. If you remember our early studies in the first chapters of Deuteronomy, we saw this. The Ammonites have been building up for hundreds of years sins, iniquity, that God is finally pouring out his wrath on on them for. He is driving them out of the land. And God says, if you want to worship like them, if you want to live like them, then you will be treated like them. If you persist in following them, I will do the same thing to you. I have to confess, I'm, I'm of a generation that doesn't particularly like talking about the judgment of God. We don't mind talking about judgment, like judging other people, really good at canceling people. We love doing that. We don't necessarily love all of the judgment talk in the Bible. I think that could be uh, some cultural influence on us. But it's an unavoidable truth repeated throughout the scriptures. God is not going to let the injustices and evils of this world go unpunished. And if we insist on aligning ourselves with evil, God will honor that choice. Moses says one of our motivations for obedience is a reverence for the holiness and justice of God. One reason we must avoid these pitfalls is that falling into them puts us on the wrong side of the living, holy God. And that is a terrible place to be. Moses says, do not align yourself with those that God is pouring out his wrath on because of their disobedience or you will find yourself in the same situation. And that would be terrible news if Moses did not give another motivation for obedience in verses 20 through 25. Because the other thing that Moses says is that this obedience is to be rooted in redemption. Look back at those verses with me. Moses sets up this imaginary scenario where in future years, a young Jewish boy asks his parents, in essence, why do we have to follow all of these laws? What's the meaning of all of this? Why do we have to do this? And before we move on to the answer, it's important to point out that the question assumes that the parents were observing and teaching the law, what we talked about last week. Without that, without the observance, the question never comes up. And so just before we move on, I just want to ask, do our lives raise the question? Do our lives raise the question, why? Are our children or our neighbors asking why we live the way that we live? In 1 Peter 3.15, the apostle writes, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. What's the assumption there? That you are living in such a way that someone will ask. What's the deal? Why do you have so much hope in a hopeless world? Are we living lives that raise the question? Moses draws up a hypothetical situation where a son is asking his parents a similar question. This son has heard his parents teaching the law and he watches them observing it and he says, what's the deal? Why do we do all this? And what answer are they supposed to give when the son asks that question? Look back at verses 21 through 23. Let me just read it. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So the answer to the child who asks, why do we do this? Is to point back to the story of redemption. We were slaves and God brought us out. We've said it so many times in this Deuteronomy series and particularly in our 10 commandment series, but we have to keep repeating it. Notice the order. Why does Israel obey? Is it to earn their salvation? No, it is not. They obey because they have already been redeemed. God has brought them out to bring them in. And so they obey. They do it for their good because God has commanded it. This is the pattern we see all throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. God graciously acts to redeem a people. Those redeemed people are then to gratefully respond in loving obedience. And that loving obedience leads to even further blessing. That's the virtuous cycle that we see throughout the scriptures. Why do we obey? God told us it's for our good and he has rescued us. And so we trust him. That's true for Israel, but of course it's even more true for us. The rescue they had in the Exodus was pointing forward to Jesus's Exodus. God led them through the waters, but he, Jesus has led us through the waters of God's wrath. And we have come out the other side unscathed because he has lived the life we ought to have lived and died the death for sin we ought to have died. And because Jesus has done that for us, now we will follow him anywhere. As one of the disciples said to Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of life. He gave himself for us, so we'll follow him anywhere. There's a story from the end of World War II about an American soldier, actually from Knoxville, Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds. He served in the 106th Infantry. And Roddy was captured early on in the Battle of the Bulge, Hitler's last great offensive at the end of the war to try to break through the Allied powers. 
Roddy was captured on December 19th. A German panzer unit plowed through his, and he and his, almost his entire regiment were captured and forced to surrender and transported to a POW camp. Roddy Edmonds was the senior enlisted American soldier at the site. And so as such, he was the conduit between the American soldiers and their German captors. In late January, the camp's commandant, Major Siegmund, ordered Roddy, who was a Christian, to identify all the American POWs who were Jewish. And he ordered him to have them come stand out front on the parade grounds the next morning. Of course, he knew these were American soldiers. The Jewish soldiers were a minority of that entire regiment that had been captured. So he assumed there would be a couple hundred standing there on the parade grounds the next morning. The next morning, Master Sergeant Edmonds ordered every single American prisoner of war in the camp to assemble outside the barracks for Siegmund. When Siegmund walked out to the courtyard, he found 1,275 men assembled with Roddy Edmonds standing in front of them. Siegmund was furious. He walked up to Edmonds and he started snarling at him in English, you will identify the Jews immediately. And Edmonds replied, we are all Jews here. Enraged, Sigmund took out his pistol and he threatened to shoot Roddy who refused to back down. He said, in effect, if you intend to kill the Jews, then you will have to kill all of us. And then he went on to explain, the war is almost over. You're gonna lose. And if you kill 1,300 American POWs, they are gonna hunt you like a dog. And Siegmund backed down that day. What's really interesting about the story to me is that Roddy Edmonds actually never was honored for this in his life. He actually died in 1985, no one knowing the story. His son found his journals after the fact and began looking for some of the other survivors and corroborated the story. This man went to his grave an, an unknown hero. His courage saved the lives of more than 200 Jewish soldiers that day. And three months later, after that day, he and all of the other Americans were rescued by the Allied forces. It's a remarkable story. Can you imagine being one of the American Jewish soldiers on that day? At the risk of his own life, a senior officer who was not Jewish and men in arms who were not Jewish stood up with you and said, we are all Jews. What kind of loyalty would you feel for a man who did that for you? Friends, our story of redemption is even better because God himself identifies with us. He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. So why do we keep the law? We fear the Lord. We don't want to experience God's wrath. Yes, yes, yes. And he has saved us. He brought us out of slavery to sin and death. 
He has brought us into everlasting life with him. How will we not follow him with everything that we have if he says it's for our good? We will plan to avoid every pitfall of affluence and idolatry and despair because we are following him, the one who gave himself for us. So friends, let us obey. Let's obey God's commands because they're for our good, because he is our God who is to be feared, and because he is our God with us who brought us out to bring us in. Amen. Let me pray for us before we sing. Our God, we thank you that you have made provision for us in your son, that you identified with us, Jesus, You were tempted in every way we are yet without sin. And for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross. Lord, would you shape us into the kind of people who obey you, not to get something from you, but because we have everything from you already in your son. We ask for your spirit's help as we seek to go out into this world for people to encounter the way we live and have questions, to ask about the reason for the hope that is within us because we have a God who has delivered us. Would you help us, Lord, to follow you with everything that we have? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.